With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Ed McGrogan. We're here with a special guest uh, today, Mr. John Wertheim, who many of you know, who, for those of you who don't, he's a fixture on Tennis Channel, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, covering sports ranging from tennis to UFC and examining those sports from both a Freakonomics and a feature reporting bend. So you've, I'd say, traveled the X and Y axes of sports journalism pretty well, Mr. John. Never heard that before, but anytime you get geometry into the intro, uh, you, you accept that. So thanks, thanks much. Good to be here. Yes, anytime. So the um, reason I'm having you on, I want to talk, is, is you're traveling again next week to Cuba for for a pretty unique story, and just to set it up, um, what happened uh, at the end of last year was a man by the name of Jake Agna of Burlington, Vermont, and Hinding Tennis, which is based in nearby West Haven, Connecticut. They were uh, granted work rights to travel to Cuba to rebuild tennis courts with license from the uh, the American and Cuban governments and it's it's it was actually the first project of its sort since the Eisenhower administration in Cuba and uh Jake Agna has a he's a founder of a um charitable tennis organization called Kids on the Ball and he's you know he's traveled to Havana and Cuba many times before it's obviously a, a pretty big passion of his and you'll be heading there to do a lot of um you know feature work for Tennis Channel of course and this is hardly your first assignment to what I would guess is pretty unfamiliar territory to you. I mean, have you been to um, have you been to Cuba before? First of all, I've never been to Cuba. No. Yeah. Be a first. Um, so what you know when you get an assignment like this, and because I know you've had some, you've really kind of went all over the place. I mean, what's kind of the first thing that you that you do as really a journalist reporter kind of what how do you really size up what you're what you may or may not know that you're getting that you're getting into well it, it really depends on the nature of the story and also the the medium i mean if, it, if it's print there's a certain roadmap there's a game plan um you know you can do follow-up interviews and make connections and contacts and cultivate sources and then call them when you get home when it's TV, as, as this will be, at least in part, when there's a video element, you know, you, you got the shot or you don't. And uh, you, you can't really, you, you know, sometimes, sometimes you can't do much once you're back. So, you know, these, these assignments are always a mix. You want to do as much prep work as possible. You want to, you know, be, be open to angles. You want to do your research. I've been reading about Cuba and 
diplomatic relations recently, and I've been reading a book, actually, excellent colleague and excellent tennis writer, Scott Price, uh, S.L. Price wrote a book about Cuba um, maybe 20 years ago called Pitting Around Fidel, which talks about sports in Cuba. Obviously, this is during a different diplomatic period. This was, you know, under Castro, and um, it, was, it was before the recent liberalization, but it's still been very helpful. But you do your research, but the flip side of that is you go in knowing that there are going to be a million forks in the road and a million complications, and I sort of go optimistically saying, you know, this, this is going to be, and this isn't just specific to Cuba. I mean, in general, for a trip like this, my overarching attitude is it's going to be crazy. It'll all work out in the end. You want to prepare, but you also want to be open to the inevitable twists and turns that any reporting trip will, will take. Yeah, you need to be nimble on something like this, exactly. Um, what are, I guess, over your career, which has been, you know, which at SI I think has been around maybe 20 years or so, 15, 20 years, what's, you know, what are some of the, the what are some of the stories I think that, that you still take, you know, that still capture you kind of to this day after, in, in thinking about what you've done on the road? I mean, you, you, you write, you've written, you know, so much, but uh, there, I think, would be some that surely stick out even to this day still. I mean, a lot of these stories you just kind of stumble upon. Um, I did a story on Jason Williams, uh, the NBA player, who's now working uh, with, with a rehab facility in Florida. And when I was there, I ran into a guy and sort of Jason said, oh, did Randy tell you his story? No. And I, I talked to, to Randy, who's another worker there. It turns out Randy was a 1986 Indy 500 Rookie of the Year driver. And that was the same year he was also the subject of the largest federal drug trafficking indictment. Uh, <laughs> Randy was a Indy 500 driver who also was doing a, a heavy-duty drug operation and was recently released from prison. So I was there to do a story on Jason Williams, an NBA story, um, and this other story came out of it. Um, that's, in a way, atypical. In a way, it's thoroughly typical that, that every every story you go on seems to... Um, it seems to germinate another number of others. I mean, I've been on the road with cool hustlers. Um, I was just in Japan for a baseball story. Um, I, again, I, I really differentiate between a, a written story in print, and you can you can follow up and you can paint a scene. And if the guy gives you an answer and he's looking down and wiping his nose while he answers. He can still use his quote if it's on TV and the guy's looking down and wiping his nose. He may not be able to use the shot. So I, I really, I mean, it, the, the strategy really, to, to me anyway, differs depending on what medium. Um, but, uh, you know, all, all these trips are great fun. All of them are never what you plan. And, again, my experience is, in the end, it always works out. And as, and as something of a... As of a... Uh, of a gourmand, I think there could be some good uh, food opportunities as well down there, I must say. In, oh, in Cuba, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That, that's the, uh, the, the dirty secret, as long as we're not, uh, as long as it stays between us. A yeah. lot of times, you, when, when you go on these shoots, a lot of times there's not much you can do when the sun goes down. Um, when you're there writing and reporting, you always think there's more, and there's another interview you could be doing, and there's another scene you could be taking in. Um, my, my experience is I, I eat I eat better when it's TV versus uh, when it's print. Very well said. 
Um, speaking of storytellers, you know, as I've as I've watched her over the years, and we know how John McEnroe has established himself as this post career rock hunter, you know, during during tennis. And one of your colleagues, Martina Navratilova, I think, has continued to really impress and just really kind of capture uh, capture me when I'm watching tennis. And, you know, she famously defected from what was then Czechoslovakia. This is not a story that's unheard of, given where we're, go- where we're going in Cuba with their history of baseball players um, defecting from the nation there. I just actually wanted to touch on Martina quickly because you've gotten to work with her so much as your work with Tennis Channel has has increased over the years. I just think she has really kind of elevated herself as really one of the voices of the game. I just wanted to get your your thoughts on on what she brings to not just an assignment but kind of the the way the game is now seen. Yeah, I mean, I would I would go beyond voices of the game and just say this this is someone will be telling our grandkids about. I mean, this, this is someone who, as well as we all know her story, I would maintain that it remains underrated. This is someone with this absolute breadth of interest. I mean, keep in mind, this is not her native country. She didn't go to school learning U.S. history, and yet she knows more about presidential politics and economics. And, I mean, this is someone with this absolute vast um, this, this breadth of knowledge. I, I would say this, and I don't want to leave anyone out, but but one thing I've noticed about Jim Courier, Martina, and Lindsay is that curiosity is such a virtue. And, and the three of them really stick out to me, and, you know, others as well, but the three of them as former players uh, really stick out to me how they've you know, in, enriched their lives and lead these meaningful, interesting lives because they're curious. And Martina's great company. You can talk to me at times where we'll talk for half an hour and the work tennis won't even come up. She's obviously, uh, she makes no secret of her political persuasions. And I think she's taken this attitude, you know, this is decades old now. I mean, think, think about when she, think about when she came out. Um, you know, God bless Jason Collins, but he even said this too. He put Martina Navratilova did this a quarter century before I did. Imagine how it was for her. Um, right. It, it's, it's really, I, I think it, it's really sort of, testament to the importance of, of being a curious person. I think that's allowed her, and again, Jim and Lindsay are two other Hall of Famers that spring to mind as well, that's really enabled them to have this, this meaningful and rich transition to life after tennis. And if you talk to Martina, here's one of the great seminal athletes um, ever. And I don't qualify that by saying female, and I don't qualify that by saying, you know, uh, there's a 70s, this is one of the all-time great athletes. And that's not her identity, and that's not her interest. And she, this is not a former athlete who's, you know, re- replaying her glory days and telling you about trophies won and uh, matches played. This is someone who exists very much in, in the present and has interests and passions that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, a, a bouncing yellow ball. Yeah, Martina is absolutely remarkable. I mean, she's just, she's just a remarkable person. And uh, again, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've gotten to know her quite well, and it, it's amazing, you know, this, this towering figure, you know, I saw a poster of her in my room, and yet, the, the tennis really isn't what it's about. Yeah, it's you're right, it's almost secondary in a way now. Let, last question, to tie it all back here about this trip to Cuba. You know, I think that, you know, 
the larger takeaway from this project of rebuilding courts in Havana is that it continues to really emphasize the fact that tennis is perhaps the most global of all the sports. Um, you know, for generations, I think it's really served as a meeting place for men and women across the globe. It, it, there is a common language in the sport that that I've seen in my travels to tournaments around the world, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Europe. Um, you can see it on its face value of how global the game is with the with the little flags next to the player names on television, but you know when you can see it in person with kind of that camaraderie too. I mean, there's clicks and everything, but there. But I think for the most part, you're seeing really the best of an international game and and really extracting the most value out of putting people from different walks of life um, into something that's together like that. And I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, have more than anything else, have we have we undersold and do we continue to undersell this aspect of tennis as maybe the most global of all the games? I, I think there's a lot in that question. I think there's a lot to unpack. Um, there's no question that this sport is, is relentlessly global and that, that's a virtue and that's a virtue that probably isn't played up enough. But I think, I think the next question is why is it so global? And... You know, we, we can come up with reasons, but one of them is, despite the, the image of a country club sport, you, you know, you need, a, you need a racket, a place to play, and uh, a can of balls you can get for a couple bucks. It costs a lot of money to be a pro, but to start off playing tennis, it's not nearly as, as expensive and as difficult as, uh, as a lot of people think. I think there's an element of enterprise in, in being a tennis player. You don't need teammates, you don't need a ton of, of structure. I mean, you, you look at where players come from and not just the flags on the, you know, on TV denoting their countries, but look at the various different circumstances and the way, you know, just, just pick any two names. The way Victoria Azarenka got into tennis is much different from Serena Williams, which is much different from the guy on Mallorca who's, whose uncles convinced them to be a left-hander. I mean, I think there's an element of, of enterprise and entrepreneurialism that, that plays well everywhere. You know, we have a Puerto Rican that won the Olympic golds and a Scott won the uh, Olympic gold in, in men. And I think that those are virtues that, that travel relatively easily. And I, I think the globalization and the fact that tennis has gotten so international is great. It should be played up. And I think the reasons why it travels so easily. And I think, I mean, I think that ties to this, this Cuba story as well. I mean, Cuba obviously has a rich history in many sports. Sports are very important to Castro. Cuba hosted the Pan Am Games. Cuba has gold medalists and baseball players and, um, you know, and, and, and boxers. And I think the question becomes sort of where, where does tennis fit in? Can tennis become a sport where Cuba can excel? And you look at what goes into crafting a, a, a tennis player and what goes into a tennis career, and you sort of say, well, you know, check, 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 and check, and facilities, and, and climate, and somebody who's who's motivated, and it's not hard to envision. We're we're not talking about a whole infrastructure where you know we need a country that has football fields and eleven guys on offense and eleven guys on defense, or where there's a, a basketball uh, sort of a, a basketball system. We're talking about a couple kids that have good hand-eye coordination and then like playing an individual sport and. It doesn't take much to imagine Cuba having some, some tennis pros. 
Yep, and you just need a, a net and a cord to set it up, and that's really the uh, how this all started here. So, John Wertheim, I thank you for your time. I wish you safe travels and extremely tasty plantains. Appreciate that. I'll bring you back some. Thank you very much. And this is, will be all for this special edition of the Tennis.com podcast. Uh, plenty more on this topic later in the week on Tennis.com and on Tennis Channel. Thank you for listening once again. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 